and never also, happened in a war before right. where we could fly someone in a matter of hours, we could stabilize them, throw them on a plane, they show up in Lanschland, Germany, which was our closest major right. hospital, they'd still literally smell like charcoal. Um, and we would unload them, take yeah. them to the ICU, take them straight to the OR sometimes, Yeah, do terrible things, honestly, but to save their lives. Right. Um, anyways, all of that is like a totally different world than what civilian doctors were experiencing at the time. Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. So this week we're kicking off Mental Health Awareness Month with a conversation with Lara Kenny. So Lara was a doctor in the army during the uh, wars that were in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the hardest thing she faced as a doctor was knowing what was right for her patients, but not being able to get what was right for her patients because of the constraints she experienced as an employee of big healthcare corporations. And today she talks to us about how she found a solution to that in a small rural community in the Midwest. And for the first time in the history of the podcast, (laughs) we got to be live in person on site with a guest, which was really cool. Um, And it felt like a huge milestone. But it also, you'll hear it reflected in the sound from from kind of the energy that we bounce off of each other. And it was a pretty intense conversation that ranged across 9-11, war, thoughts of suicide, and also the hope that comes from new opportunities. It was a great conversation, but it can be kind of intense and difficult in places. So you might have a think about how and where you listen. All right, let's have a listen. I signed my contract with the United States Army in 1999 um, when I was 19 turning 20 years old, which is important for multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is it was before September 11th, which some people will still recollect what that did to our world, shift, you know, shifted our country. So when September 11th happened, I had already signed that contract. I already knew I was going to be an active duty Mm -hmm. doctor the day I graduated medical school. And I was driving in to my ethics class when the plane hit the Pentagon. Oh my gosh. I think that was one of the seminal moments where everybody kind of went, oh no, this is This is planned. This is big. This is something bad. All of our hearts kind of dropped. I got to ethics class. I watched the towers fall in the dean's office on the TV Mm because we kept running in to get updates. And Mm -hmm. that's when they melted and and imploded. I graduated in 2004, so three years into the war on terror. We were pretty much just in Afghanistan at that Mm -hmm. point. There's a lot of special forces that wasn't really affecting everybody. Um, My intern year of residency, they um, threatened to deploy us before we'd even finished residency because that is when... Um, we started taking losses with IEDs and some of the guerrilla warfare tactics. My third year of residency, I was um, sent to Lonshul. I Mm -hmm. volunteered, um, but they needed us to back up the surgeons because there were too many casualties coming in for them to be in the operating room and manage the intensive care unit. So they sent third year residents, which are pretty competent mm-hmm. by then. Um, I'd done a lot of ICU rotations. That was before work hours restrictions. Right. I'd managed the ICU as right. a senior resident two years by then, um, been at night by myself, all of that. So I showed up in Lonstool and myself and a resident from Walter Reed 
um, took turns and we, um, I won't say we ran the SICU. I think that sounds a little presumptuous, but we essentially did Mm -hmm. um, with, of course, the help of the amazing surgical teams that were there and super skilled surgeons um, and an intensivist. But we definitely provided the manpower. I mean, right. we worked six, seven days a week. Right. And it's not like you weren't in communication. No. But you, we were at you the had bedside. to make, right. And you had to make, you had to be the eyes and the yes. ears and you had to make quick Adjust decisions. Adjust the ventilators. And then, yep. Yep. You know, we, we, they needed that manpower. So and it so bears a little bit of explaining here you know, that in the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in 2005, 2006, when Dr. Kenny was there, the injuries that service members were sustaining were devastating. They were calculated by the insurgents to deliver the worst injuries for the least cost. But our advanced medical technologies and treatments, the things that we had learned along the way, meant that our soldiers were surviving wounds that they never would have survived in another war. If someone came in to the field hospital with a pulse, they had a 96% chance of surviving. But what they were surviving were devastating injuries. There were multiple amputations, catastrophic hemorrhage. And those were the things that Dr. Kenny was dealing with. She was also dealing with this new standard of evacuation. It was not unusual for wounded service members to arrive in Landstuhl within hours of their injuries. And in fact, sometimes they got to Walter Reed in DC or to the Brook Army Medical Center Burn Center in Texas within 24 to 48 hours. It was really remarkable what they could do, but it was also remarkable what these young medical personnel had to manage. In a matter of hours, we could stabilize them, throw them on a plane. They show up in Launchland, Germany, which was our closest major right. hospital. They'd still literally smell like charcoal. Right. Um, and we would unload them. Take them to the ICU, take them straight to the OR sometimes. Yeah. Do terrible things, honestly, but to save their lives. Right. Um, Anyways, all of that is like a totally different world than what civilian doctors were experiencing at the time. Right. I had a ton of autonomy as a resident because of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And and my judgment was trusted. um, And and we were in leadership positions from the beginning, really. Right. Um, and then we knew, we all knew the moment we graduated residency, if we had the courtesy of getting through residency, which we all did without getting deployed, that we were going to deploy right away. Right. I mean, there was no question. Everybody we knew had deployed. All our attendings had deployed. That's when deployments were still up to 18 months long because there weren't enough of us. Yeah. And I think people forget also the volume of of casualties we that you were seeing. The IEDs. It was unbelievable. That was a that had not been something that we had seen early on. And right. once they mastered that and right. it worked well, um, we were taking a lot of casualties. And they were some bad. pretty horrific injuries. Right. Um, blast injuries. Correct. And um, doing that, that was does I'm really thankful as a doctor had that experience. It made mm-hmm. me a, I think I think I'm a good doctor, it made me a really good doctor. Um, and I probably could deal with stuff that a lot of people, even having gone through medical, the rigors of medical training, wouldn't right. imagine dealing with. Um, but it, it definitely gave me a lot of autonomy. And then knowing we were going to be deployed, you know, our attendings, our supervisors had been deployed and done some pretty horrific things. I mm-hmm. mean, you had nephrologists, kidney specialists, you know, intubating people who'd been shot in the face. Right. Um, you know, I, they came back from those experiences back to the hospitals where we were residency. Um, residents and they were our staff and they told us about them 
right. they wanted us prepared to handle it because right. they weren't either. I mean, this, you know, they had been in the army for decades and had never had to do anything like that. And all of a sudden war changed everything. So, you know, we had trainings, you know, we had uh, morning reports on how to put in chest tubes, even though we were, you know, medicine residents right. and, and how to evaluate a chest tube. And, um, and I put some in, you know, mm-hmm. that's not something most internal medicine doctors have done unless they're pulmonologists. Um, we did, uh, you know, all sorts of. Anyways, the point is that it gave it gave my medical career a very different feel, and I think a lot of autonomy. Right. And then I did deploy, as we all expected. I actually deployed to Guantanamo first. Um, I was the only internal medicine doctor in the detention area. Um, uh, I was the uh, battalion doctor, the only doctor in the battalion, the only army doctor down there. Um, so I had a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter I was right out of residency. I was like the subject matter expert in half a dozen things. There was nobody else with the same training I had. Right. Um, and I had to make big decisions, decisions that went across like the president's desk. I mean, I never met the president, but I mean, right. if I, if I made a decision. Right. It, and so you had I, to learn, you had to learn not only to have the confidence to make those decisions, but to learn how to back up, how to, yeah. how to acquire the data that you needed to make those decisions. And, and move to, forward. Right. And, and brief a colonel or brief a general, um, you know, on things. Um, and, and nobody was looking at me like, oh, it's Laura Brisenio from Oregon. I mean, it's like, at that time I was a captain, but like, you know, Captain Brisenio, what, you know, what do we need to do here? Right. They don't know. They're not doctors. Right. Um, and then I, I came home from that. I was there a little over a year, and I deployed to Iraq very shortly thereafter. And I, again, was a battalion's uh, doctor, mm-hmm. um, escalated up to brigade doctor, Again, briefing generals, making decisions. I mean, I was accountable for, for decisions and, and all sorts of things. Um, so when I got out of the Army, which was within a year of coming home from Iraq, I'd already done quite a few things. And I most of that time I'd spent out of the whole like hospital administrative kind of thumb. I had been the doctor making right. decisions. So what Dr. Kenny is describing here is an illustration of something that Professor Lacquemont talked about in a previous episode on professionalism and this concept of training the next generation. The officers who came back from Iraq or Afghanistan and were interested and invested in preparing their younger colleagues to face those challenges that they knew would be there um, was an important way of shaping who they would become as professionals and as physicians. So they were being prepared both technically and psychologically for what they would see when they deployed. But the other thing that she talks about that's really powerful is that when she was at Guantanamo, her commanding officers had the humility to say to her, make me smarter. I don't understand this. It's out of my field of knowledge. So help me understand it and help me make good decisions. They were relying on her to fill in the gaps of knowledge that they didn't have, even if she was junior. So when I got out, I went in, back into training um, at, to get fellowship trained in hematology oncology. And um, even in that short amount of time, so that had been seven years since I'd been mm-hmm. kind of in the civilian uh, medical school training, I went back to the same university that I'd done medical school at. Yeah. Um, and mostly everything was the same, like same janitors, same lady at, you know, <laughs> right. cooking same at the staff. line, yep. same attendings, most of them. Um, a lot of my friends from medical school were now attendings, like very familiar, but things had changed a lot. 
Um, yeah. The residents, the work hours had happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the the dynamic on the teams were so different. Like who pulled who pulled that most weight and things like mm. it shifted a lot. Um, uh, I came out still feeling very confident in myself and used to being in charge. And so sure. even as a fellow, I was like, nope, this is what we're going to do. You know, I, I had no hesitation and people were kind of like, mm, hmm, that's weird. I mean, it definitely stood out. I think yep. it served me well, but it definitely stood out. And then when I finished fellowship and I started looking at jobs, same thing. I was like, well, here's what I want to do. Right. You know, I, I th- here's what I think your hospital could do. We could start a clinic. And people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, let's, let's stop and think about this. Mm-hmm. I think it'd be better if you took a job with like a big corporation um, you know, there's just more safety there and, mm. and, uh, you know, you get in a salary and because I wasn't thinking that I was actually thinking I could start like a clinic for like a small hospital and, sure. and build a hemop clinic. This is right at my alley from being in the army, you know, coming up with policies, making things happen that weren't happening. We show up, we make a clinic, right. you know, and we start running it. Right. Um, that's what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, no, I'm totally comfortable with this. And they were not comfortable with it. It was like, no, 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 no. I think it'd be better if you like worked for somebody, but you doesn't hmm. work here. And so, you know, I'm going to fast forward just a little bit because the, the, the short answer is that was a tough corporate, corporate work was tough for you. Yeah. Um, and, and you, you know, it, it would be interesting to hear sort of what the, what the challenges were in terms of you came out having been a leader going into corporate medicine, I assume that you presumed you were continued to be a leader. I did. And yet that didn't pan out. Yeah. That's actually a pretty short explanation. I still was doing what I was thought I was good at. Yeah. Um, and I did think I was in, I don't know if in charge of the right word, but in lead mm-hmm. of like the medical services that were under me in this case, hematology, oncology, I thought it was both my obligation, my responsibility, but also my um, wheelhouse, my set of skills right. that I was bringing to the table that was your to expertise. really create something for the community. Um, and that if I said that this is a good idea, we'd try to make it happen. And if I said this isn't working or this is a bad idea, we would fix it. Um, and I really actually thought I was doing that. Um, mm. And I think to some degree I was, but then, um, just within a few short years, it became apparent to me through a series of, of corporate transactions that didn't include me that I thought that's what I was doing, but that's not what they wanted me mm-hmm. for. They didn't, they didn't value that about me at all. In fact, it was a hindrance to them. Um, it wasn't like, Hey, this is so cool. We've got this person who's done all these things in her short medical career in our little town, like, this is awesome. What an asset. That's what I thought. I thought I was really given something. No, that is not the case. It's like, where did she come from and why does she have an opinion? (laughs) (laughs) She's really kind of a pain in the, you know what? Can she, can you go back to the clinic? Let's go around her. Can you go back to the clinic, please? You just go see some patients. And could you see more? Because you're taking way too long with these patients, Mm. you know, or, or, um, one time they sent a, another doctor down to show me kind of how to be more efficient. And I was like, I know how to do what you just showed me how to do. It happened to be a male. So it was a little bit of mansplaining going on. But anyways, <laughs> um, 
I was like, no, no, I know how to do that. I don't do that because that patient actually needed that time because they had just found out their cancer was incurable and they thought it wasn't. And so I needed to explain that to their spouse who was sobbing in the room. Right. It's not that I didn't understand how to press the button and get out of that room faster and code it and move on. I, I fully understand how to do that. Thank you. I chose not. I chose to. not to. I chose to be the compassionate physician yes, that because that's you why say you want. I do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They say they want, but they don't want that. That is a big hindrance to profit. Yeah. So you made a shift, though. Is you did you know? And and was there a was there a moment when you sort of thought, I'm, it. I gotta go. Mm-hmm. When I realized that what I thought I was doing for them mm. wasn't what they wanted me for at all. Yeah. Um, that, that's when I was done. But I was profoundly confused about where I was supposed to go from there. Yeah. Because I didn't know anybody who owned their own office at that point. That was a doctor. Um, uh, the doctors had sold all their practices. The ones that couldn't sell had retired and literally just shuttered their doors. And um, I thought, I don't have an option. Yeah. I'm going to have to figure out a way to shut up um, and just make all this money. I mean, the money was plentiful. I need to figure out a way to shut up and do this while I'm like not but the money. <laughs> but the money, you know, what you just said, I think is really critical that no matter that you were making a good income. Oh, I was the, I ability, was the most unhappy I'd ever been in my life. Right. That I was making the most money I'd ever made. And, and the reason that you were so unhappy is because you couldn't take care of your patients the way you wanted to. Yes. I couldn't take care of my patients the way I wanted to. And I also realized that I was not valued for my ability and effort to take care of patients. Yeah. Nobody cared. Right. The patients did. Right. Which is the only thing that keeps most of us going. But it was not enough at that point. I was so unhappy that nobody else did. Right. Um, I, I could not live with I, that. Like that was like ripping off... Um, a blindfold or whatever. Once I saw that, mm-hmm. actually the, the analogy I used to describe it to my family was um, Emperor's New Clothes. My mom used to read right. that book to us when we were right. all the time. And once I looked around and realized these people that I had been having meetings with thinking that I was collaborating with them, helping yeah. them improve the medical care in our community. Once I looked and realized that they didn't see me that way at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all lip service. Like then I realized they were all, you know, naked, like emperor's new clothes. I realized this isn't, I'm not where I thought I was at all. Right. That was a huge, uh, heartbreak disappointment. Um, and then since I didn't immediately realize I had a feasible option, feasible financial option where I could still practice medicine, I went through a very dark time where I really was just, I mean, I cried every day. I was profoundly unhappy and still seeing patients. Right. And by then, most of my support staff was gone because they were unhappy. So I was there till eight, nine o'clock at night. Right. Almost every day. Right. And it was coming out of your own hide that you would continue to try to take care of your patients the way that you know was best. Yes. I was there calling them back because I wasn't sure if anybody had because I didn't have a regular nurse anymore and, and following up on things and double checking myself, you know, make sure I hadn't overlooked something. And so you made a big change and you figured out how to get back Mm -hmm. to that kind of practice that I didn't know existed. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how are you practicing now? 
So my friend, Andrea, mm-hmm. who is my fellow Army scholarship yep. in medical school, um, the irony of that, uh, thank God for social media. So I saw that she had opened a practice. <laughs> she, I saw that she was opening a practice, which I didn't even fully understand. And then I saw that she had opened a practice and I called her and I said, what are you doing? How did you, how? Yeah. And she told me, oh, Laura, let me tell you about this thing. It's called direct primary care, DPC. She added me to a Facebook group. She spent about 45 minutes that day. I was on my way home from work telling me what she knew about it. Mm-hmm. She just opened her office. Um, that, and, she, and she reassured, she's like, you can, you can totally do this. This is exactly what we were doing in the Army because she was in during wartime too. Yep. She's family practice, but still she's like, no, like this is what we're, this is like what we're used to doing. I mean, mm-hmm. this, is, this is basic business, clinic management. You know how to do this. Right. Your time in the army, we did this already. And I, and that was a glimpse, like that was seriously a lifeline. Um, I came home and I told my husband who still probably to this day doesn't understand what I'm talking about <laughs> two years later. Um, that was in late fall. Mm-hmm. And by um, January I had incorporated myself because you have to have, you know, right. LLC or something to start um, doing some of these things. I had um, found and purchased this house that we're sitting in right now, which is yep. the home of my current clinic. So direct primary care probably deserves just a second of explanation. It's a little bit like a subscription service to medical care that is outside of what we normally think of as healthcare. It doesn't require that you submit anything to insurance. It means that the doctor is not employed by a big hospital or healthcare system. It means that the relationship is just between you and the physician and they have the autonomy to make decisions as they see fit. It tends to be good for patients. And in this case, it was also good for the physician. It was good for Dr. Kinney. And it allowed her to develop a relationship with her community that she hadn't been able to create before this. You know, the floors, a a patient refinished for me. A lot of the work around here, people did... I wouldn't say for me, I paid them or, but I mean, right. you know, they, they pitched in because they believed in what I was trying to do and they knew that I cared about them mm-hmm. and that's why I was doing this. And, um, after I had decided to do this, but was still employed, I was much happier cause I knew I had an out, but the ongoing dissidence for me was you can't serve two masters. Mm-hmm. I couldn't correct. I couldn't sacrifice the patient care to increase production, but also tell people I cared about them and had their best interests in heart. Yeah. I couldn't order a CAT scan that I knew was marked up 200%, but also tell people I had their best interests in heart. If I knew that they could get the CAT scan at a competing hospital for half that price. Right. I couldn't send them to um, a fellow specialist within my hospital system just because I was employed by that hospital system if I knew the right person that they would get along with the best was in a competing hospital system and still tell them that I cared about them and that their best interest was priority for me. And I honestly don't know how anybody can do that. But um, for me and my personality type, I'm very black and white about a lot of things and I just couldn't. It was not right to me. Yeah. And I refused to play that game. Um, and so here, I don't serve two masters. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I serve my patients directly. And if they're satisfied with that, 
um, which as far as I know they all are, um, then they grant me the privilege of being their doctor and they trust me and we have a relationship and I do what I think is in their best interest. And my only personal gain aside from the reward of being able to practice medicine is that I just need to be able to make enough mm-hmm. to pay for my life. Right. Nothing extravagant, just like everybody wants. Everybody wants to you know, be able to buy a car and have a roof over their head. And um, I think it's fair. I mean, I, I dedicated several decades of my life with no income to be able to help people. Right. So I think it's fair to expect to be paid for that and for the expertise and the sacrifices um, that we all still make as doctors. You know, we, we miss mm-hmm. dinner. We don't go to our kids thing, you know, because we work. But yeah, um, and, and that's fine. I am happy to make those sacrifices. Um, but I, I just couldn't serve two masters anymore. And so yeah, I'm happy think, with myself. Yeah, and I think what you're explaining or what you're describing when you talk about those two masters is exactly the roots of moral injury. Oh, yes, absolutely. And so this, this being able to escape that, that bind, that double yeah. bind of saying, I'm going to send you to, you know, I'm going to tell you that I'm t- sending you to the, to the best person for your care, but I know in the back of my mind... That's not who I would go to. Exactly. And you're now able to escape from that because you don't have those, those competing, those conflicting interests. Yes. Well, and, and the, the repercussions, right? So when you serve two masters, you really don't serve either, right? You're, you're right. just loyal to both. Correct. But the, how that translates went to me, to myself as an employed physician, how it translated was if I did what I thought was right, and I told the patient, you know who you should go see is this person over here. Right. I don't care that they're not in our system. Then I was being disloyal to my employer, which Correct. is not looked kindly upon. Um, you're not a very good employee if you're doing that, understandably from a, a money standpoint. Right. Um, so if I did what I thought was right, I was still doing a disservice to my employer. Right. Or if I served my employer well, then I was doing a disservice to the patient. So. So essentially, I could do nothing but fail in both directions. Correct. Which is a terrible feeling, especially for anybody who has dedicated their life to helping people and, and hard workers, which most doctors are. I mean, we want to do the best. Right. We're going to be the best employee, the most productive, you know, <laughs> the smartest. I mean, like most of us are very driven people. Mm-hmm. So if you're disappointed, even it still hurts to disappoint your employer when you're a go-getter right you know, take no prisoners kind of person, but you have to choose. You cannot serve two masters. Right. You're either compromising, um, on your patient's care, which feels very yucky and very dirty. Right. Um, or you're compromising on your loyalty to your employer, which, um, I think most doctors still want to choose patients, but like I said, we're mostly like hardworking rule followers. We don't like being told that we disappointed our employer either. Well, and more than that, I mean, we've also talked about the fact that there are very few options if you make that employer unhappy and no longer work there. When Especially you have, if you sign the contract without reading it. Right. And you have a do not compete clause. Or but even but even if you office. just have but even if you just have only one other choice in town. Sure. Which was my case. I mean there right. was only I, I didn't and even have, have t- another choice in town. I and had you have the next county. And you have a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Yeah. That's a hard that's a hard thing That's to face. That's the golden handcuffs. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you can leave, but you're going to leave with some marks. Right. 
and you're probably going to have to uproot your family. Right. Which is what I was so just, I mean, passively suicidal. It's like, we moved down here. Mm-hmm. It's a small town. Um, we, we've made our home here. We have, I've had all three of my boys here, you know, um, this is where we were going to stay. And now because I can't suck it up basically and keep working under these conditions that I'm now aware of, um, what am I going to do? What choice do I have? Do I just uproot my whole family and we move to another state? I mean, like, I can't do that to my family. Right. Um, and do I just have to take whatever I can get, get, no matter where it is in the country, whether it's near family or it's not near family or friends or whatever? Right. Or do I just do locums so I have to travel and be gone from my small children? Right. Um, all of those things. Like, pe- I mean, we have a lot of options as doctors, but we don't. I mean, I think that's hard for, I think a lot of doctors understand that. I think that's probably a lot harder for people outside looking in to understand mm-hmm. You know, like, well, you're making all this money and, and you get a job anywhere. Like, you know, you don't have to struggle to get a job. Yes. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that I'm fortunate, but it's not quite that, that kind of drive. It's right. that simple. Um, it can be very hard to find the job that you want with the terms that you want in the area that you want. Right. Um, and yeah. So, so one of the things that people talk about with direct primary care is this, this tension where, it, it maybe doesn't offer everybody access. Sure. So um, each practice is owned by a physician. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, it's going to be as good or as bad as the person that owns it, right. um, like any business. But uh, at least as far as I've been involved now for a little over two years with the, com- the direct primary care community of doctors, um, I haven't yet met a single doctor who didn't have pretty similar feelings to me and one of the reasons that they left almost all of them have left employment Mm -hmm. of some sort or a private even a private practice that they've turned to to dpc um is uh they wanted to be able to offer access to care right and the access comes through the affordability yeah and almost every dpc practice i'm aware of has probably around 10 percent of patients that are um, on some sort of scholarship or whatever mm-hmm. you might want to call it, um, where they're not paying yeah. and, and we're okay with it because we know that person and we know they are on hard times right? or they're a hard worker, but they don't have the money or, um, whatever. And the freedom of being able to offer that because I do have the autonomy mm-hmm. someone that owns the business. Um, that's awesome. Right. And so the, the, the point for you is again, to take care of the people in your community in a way that is sustainable for you, but not extractive. Yeah, and it's affordable for them. Right. We're both getting a great deal here. Right. They're getting a doctor that they can actually afford to see. Most of them have not seen doctors in years when they come to my practice, mm-hmm. as they couldn't afford to. Um, they have a relationship with me, so they know who I am and they can yep. trust me, they can form trust. Um, and rapport. I know who they are when they call. It's mm-hmm. not a, a number. Um, there's not a phone tree. Yeah, no, there's no, no. <laughs> that's like one of my goals is to never have a phone tree. Cause I yeah. hate being routed right. to a phone tree when I call an office. So I, I really appreciate the conversation today. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that is important you think for people to know either patients or, or other physicians? I think it's really important for physicians to realize that there are options Mm -hmm. you do not have to serve two masters. Yes.
So, Wendy, that was a um, fascinating discussion um, and really one that is thought-provoking about how somebody with so much uh, background and experience and, frankly, autonomy can go from the kind of circumstances that happened in the Middle East or happened in the Middle East to back to the United States. Right, and how... How someone who was leading an organization, who was looked to as an expert, then comes back and says, wait a minute, do you, do you want my opinion? And struggles to get herself heard to the point where it's hard for her to get her patients well taken care of. Well, there were, there were two key things that she said, right? She said that she actually had the experience and the ability to fix the system, and she wanted to fix the system, but corporate medicine didn't really want her to do that at all. That was the first thing I think she said that kind of hit home with me. And the second thing she said, which I think was uh, a really common theme that we hear, is that no one really valued that opinion. That her thoughts and her experiences and her abilities weren't being valued when she knew what she could do better. Right. And it's almost as though our skill sets are kind of being put into buckets. And if you're in the clinician bucket, it's really hard to see you in the management or the administrative bucket. Right. And it would be great if we could break down those silos and and get people talking across them. Right. And to those lines, you know, another point that she made, which actually is really uh, ironic from my point of view, is the idea that this was all about the Emperor's New Clothes. (laughs) You know, somebody actually sent me that book the other day because they agreed so strongly with that point. So it's (laughs) nice that in, in a short space of time, I've seen that twice now. And I think it's a really good point that she makes got particularly bad for her when she suddenly realized what was going on and that it was being hidden. Right. And I love the fact that she said, you know, I, I, I could quit and I could, I could just walk away. I could walk away from medicine and do something completely different. But she's so committed to her community and her patients that she said, I'm going to take it back, but I'm going to use it for what I know to be good for my community. And that her community is starting to really rally around her mm. and, and to see the value in what she's doing as a physician one-to-one with patients. So I guess we should also talk a little bit about direct patient care, because that's one of the things that came out of this. And um, there's some goods and there's some bads about direct patient care. I think the thing that is particularly helpful from her point of view is the ability to actually develop again these relationships with her patients and have those meaningful relationships and not have all the other things in the way and also the financial simplicity of it. So money not going to the bloat in the system, if you like, Um, just that simple direct relationship financially as well as personally. But there are some bad things, right? So there are, there are some challenges for sure. And one of them, I think we addressed at least briefly in our conversation, which was the accessibility and can everyone afford direct primary care um, from the patient side? And I think that really is dependent on the practice and on the choices that the individual clinician makes. Clearly, Dr. Kenny is, is committed to her community and making sure that those in the greatest need can also get access to her services. But it is a question. Right. And there's, of course, different areas of medicine where direct patient care is, is, is not practical. Uh, There's some extremely expensive aspects to patient care that just don't lend themselves to paying cash for. Right. 
But certainly this is, a, this is an interesting concept to be thinking about and it is the solution for some people. I mean, I think one of the things that it, it points out very clearly is what you can do if you are able to carve out that middle piece of the system. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's worth thinking about, are there ways to do that in, in other specialties that don't look like they're quite as amenable? Maybe there are creative ways that we can approach those, those specialties as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for having that conversation, Wendy. I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't be there, but I mean, it's, uh, it's an important conversation and, and uh, Lara was just fabulous. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much for joining us for that bonus episode of Moral Matters. We'll drop our regular episode on May the 6th and we'll be joining Dr. Michael Myers, who's dedicated his career to physician mental health. And pretty soon, we're going to be recording our Ask Us Anything episode. So if you have questions or if there's something that you want us to talk about, please send those to podcast at moralinjury.healthcare. And of course, continue the conversation on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare. Instagram at Moral Injury. Twitter at WDeanMD and Simon Talbot MD, And our general Twitter handle at Fixed Moral Injury. Thanks for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the episodes. It's helping other people find the podcast, which we think is fantastic, and it's helping us to spread the word. Thank you, and join us next time. Thanks. Thanks.